spring break. We won't have Wednesday night church this coming Wednesday, just an FYI. And also, we have two funerals today, uh, one with the passing of Gary France's dad, uh, Bob France, and that funeral will be at 2 o'clock at Friendship Presbyterian Church uh, this afternoon. And also, Miss Marilyn Casper passed away yesterday morning, and her funeral will be this afternoon at 3 o'clock at Smith's Funeral Home with visitation beforehand. If you would like to help with meals for the Casper family, we're having that meal here at the church at 430 you can bring food here or help serve either capacity. We would love to have you. Okay, so um, we are in week two of our series called Essentials. Know what you believe. What we're doing is we're identifying some of the key doctrines, some of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. We talked about last week how in Christian theology, there are some open-handed issues with regard to theology. And we refer to these open-handed issues as things, for example, things like the perpetual virginity of Mother Mary. If you grew up Catholic or you grew up Lutheran, you may believe in the perpetual virginity or be, have been taught that, the doctrine of that. And we can disagree about the perpetual virginity of, the mother, of Mother Mary, and no one was in danger of losing their salvation as a result of it. You may have been taught in growing up years about the doctrine of transubstantiation. It's this fancy word that basically means when the communion elements are blessed that they literally turn into the flesh and the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we can argue back and forth about whether or not transubstantiation or we can argue back and forth about once saved or always saved, but nobody's going to lose their salvation, you get me, as a result of being on one side of this issue or not. But there are also what we refer to in Christian theology as closed-handed issues. These are issues that we're going to duke it out, we're going to fight about, because if you don't believe in some of these essential doctrines of the faith, we talked about one of these last week, the resurrection of Christ, then the Bible would say that you are not a believer. You don't believe in the resurrection, you're not a believer, you're not a Christian. You may be something, you may be a Mormon, you may be a Jehovah's Witness, you may be an agnostic who just likes the church culture, but the Bible would say that you are not a believer. Um, and so a person may claim the name of Christ, but if they don't believe in one of these essential doctrines of the faith, then the Bible would say that person is not a believer, that Christ doesn't claim them. Um, and so today we want to take a look at another of those essential doctrines, and that is the sinlessness of Christ. And so what we want to do is to examine whether or not it's even possible for a person to live sin-free, and then to give some evidences, some compelling evidences, to support uh, whether or not Christ lived a sin-free life. And then we'll wrap it all up by answering our most important question, what difference does all this make to our lives? So let's stand together. We're going to read from John chapter 8, verses 46 and 47. And again, we stand each week to be reminded that this is where truth comes from. We're hitting the reset button on all the stuff we heard on The View this past week and all the stuff that you know other folks in the news had to say and what we heard at, at work and to say, you know what, this is what God thinks. We don't have to wonder what he thinks. He wrote it down, so we stand up for God's word. Let's read together John chapter 8, verses 46 and 47. Here we go. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. You may be seated. All right, thank you so much. Let me give you just a little bit of background about these verses. Um, Jesus in John chapter 8 is in the middle of a very heated argument, very heated argument with, uh, the, with uh, the rabbis. The rabbis have accused Jesus of a number of the things. They've accused him of being a liar. 
They've accused him of being demon-possessed, that Jesus literally was possessed of demons. They've accused him of being a Samaritan, which was like a dirty word back then that meant you were a low-life slime ball. They've accused Jesus. They made some derogatory comments earlier in chapter 8 about his birth. They had heard the rumors about Mary and Joseph and how Jesus came along, and Mary and Joseph hadn't been, hadn't been wedded for nine months, and so they made some comments about that. And so in defense of himself, Jesus responds with a statement. And in this statement, Jesus vocalizes one of the essential doctrines, one of the closed-handed issues of the Christian faith. And here's the statement that he makes, verse 46. Can any one of you prove me guilty of sin? He says, can any one of you prove me guilty of sin? In other words, you've called me a liar. You've called me demon-possessed. You said I was a low-life slime ball. Well, if I am any one of those things, then prove that I have committed a sin. If I've lied, then point it out to me. If I'm demon-possessed, then prove it. If I am a low-life slime ball, then prove it. Point out where I have cheated somebody, he's saying. He goes on to say in verse 46, If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Verse 47, He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason that you don't hear, he says, is because you do not belong to God. Now, do you understand what Jesus just did here? He basically says to these rabbis that he's back and forth with, he basically issues them a challenge. He says, I've got a contest for you, right? And so here's the thing. He says, you find one thing that I've ever done wrong in all of my life, and I will step back my claim that I'm the Messiah. I will step back my claim that I am God in the flesh. I will walk that back. I will disappear from human history. You point out one time that I've ever done anything wrong, and I will, I will, I will capitulate. Um, but he says, if you can't, if you can't prove me guilty of sin, just one infraction in all of my life, um, then how about y'all accept my claim that I'm the Messiah? How about y'all believe in me? And that's perfectly reasonable. I mean, if, if there's this guy and he's never committed a sin in his life, well, maybe, maybe just maybe we ought to take what he has to say with, you know, some degree of, of authority there. But on the other hand, what an unbelievable claim that Jesus just makes. Who can prove me guilty of sin? I mean, what person with blood running through their veins has ever been able to make a claim like that? It almost sounds preposterous. Friends, you try throwing that challenge out to your wife. And boy, she'll come up with some stuff. It won't take her long. Well, five minutes ago, she said, you know, or you throw that claim out there in front of your children and you watch what happens. You throw that claim, can anybody prove me guilty of sin in your workplace? And man, people will come up with stuff. They'll watch what happens. You throw that, that challenge out in front of your parents. My mom and dad are here today. Please don't go ask them that question. Please don't go ask them that question. Um, watch what happens. <clears throat> they may be your parents. They may be your family members. They may be your close friends, your co-workers. But friends, if we were to issue that challenge out to people, folks would be lined up around the block ready to tell stories on us of, oh, well, I remember when. Let me tell you about, right? And so this brings us to consider our first piece of compelling evidence that Jesus lived a sin-free life. And so compelling evidence number one is that Jesus didn't throw this challenge out to his friends. He didn't throw this challenge out to his family. Jesus threw this challenge out to his sworn enemies, his sworn enemies, the rabbis. These are people, get this, these are people who are looking for stuff to catch Jesus on. These are people who are looking to take him out. These are people who are looking to discredit him. 
and he gives them a golden opportunity. He says, I will disappear, I will vanish, I will go away if you can just point out one time when I have sinned. And so these rabbis, the sworn enemies of Jesus, that's exactly what they try to do. They spend every waking moment up until they got Jesus on the cross, peppering him with questions, huddling together with the best and the brightest, and trying to come up with stumper question after stumper question, trying to trip him up, trying to catch him in some sin, trying to catch him in some sort of infraction. And they would send group after group to Jesus, day after day, trying to find some fault in him. But they couldn't find a fault. And finally, they just said, well, we've exhausted our efforts. We're going to have to kill him. And they did. The rabbis, the enemies of Jesus, couldn't produce a single instance. They couldn't come up with anything. You say, Gordon, hold on just a second. What exactly are we talking about when we say that Jesus was sin-free? Are we saying like, like that he didn't commit some sort of uh, infraction with relationship to the Jewish religious laws or something like that? I mean, what do we mean when we talk about Jesus being sin-free? Well, let me tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean that Jesus was violation-free only in relationship to religious rules and observances. For example, that maybe he missed synagogue one Sunday or that he didn't do one of his offerings that he was supposed to do at some particular time in the year. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus being sin-free. He was much more than that. The Jesus that, and Nor do we mean when we talk about Jesus being sin-free that he had this kind of Mother Teresa, this Florence Nightingale, this big heart for people. That's not what we mean. Like he was just this loving person. Oh, he was sin-free. He never thought about anybody but himself. He was just a loving person. But when he was a kid, you know, or when he was 15 years old, you know, I mean, some things happened. And, but, that's, you know, but he's matured. He's become an adult. And so you know, Jesus is sin-free now later in his life. No, no, no. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus being sin-free. The sinlessness of Christ means that Jesus lived a sin-free life from birth all the way to the cross. The totality of his entire human life here on earth. That from the time he was a baby all the way till he died, this means that Jesus never had a case of the terrible twos. This means that Jesus was always obedient to his parents. This means that Jesus never peeked over at another kid's test question in school. It means that he never swore when he hit his thumb with a hammer in his dad's shop. It means he never swiped a cookie out of the cookie jar. It means as a young man, nor at any point in his adult life, that he ever had a lustful thought, ever. It means that he was hanging there on the cross and enduring the brutal brutality of those Roman soldiers when they were flogging him, that he never commended mental murder. Remember Jesus said, do not murder, but it's much more than that. It means that to be sin-free, it means exactly that, that Jesus lived a sin-free life with regard to civil law, with regard to ceremonial law, and with regard to the moral law of God, that he never committed a sin, an infraction ever in his entire life. Friends, this is the unbroken claim of the Bible. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, and yet was without sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us on the cross. And 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22, Peter writes, He, Jesus, committed no sin. This is Peter, who from the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, walked with him for three years of his public ministry, and looking back says, The guy never sinned. He never 
no deceit was found in his mouth. Think about this. Jesus often frequented the temple, but we don't have a single instance where Jesus offered a sacrifice for his own sins. Why? Because he didn't have to. Jesus prayed on the cross. He prayed, Father, forgive them. Never do we have a single instance where Jesus prayed, Father, forgive me. Why? Because he didn't have to. Friends, um, oh, no, I'm going to change. I was going someplace else. I had 23 pages to share with you today. So I had to cut that down a little bit so we could make it uh, out of here before the sun went down. But in any case, um, you say, Gordon, I'm curious, why does the Bible go to such great lengths to make this claim that Jesus ever sinned? I mean, why does it even matter whether or not Jesus, maybe he did something a little bit wrong when he was earlier a kid or something like that, or a teenager, you know, just did something wrong. And so, I mean, what difference does it make? I mean, people, people would have thought, yeah, he's still a good guy. I mean, he's very gracious. He owned his stuff. And so what does it even matter that Jesus maybe committed some sin earlier in his life? Well, the answer to that question is that if Jesus had committed a single sin in his life, he would have been disqualified as our sin substitute. He would have been disqualified. If he had gone to the cross and he had had sin in his heart, then God would have not accepted the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for you and for me. You see, in Old Testament times, God set up animal sacrifices as a way for the Jewish people to make atonement for or to make right with God the sins that they had committed. And they would take a lamb, they would inspect the lamb over the course of 12 days. This is, is, is Hebrew, or no, Hebrew. This is Exodus chapter 12, uh, verses, see, I was going to go into this stuff, but I'm not going to go into this stuff. Anyhow, but there's, uh, where they would inspect the lamb for a number of days, and they would watch it carefully, and they would make sure that there was nothing wrong with it. And then they would take that lamb, that unblemished, that perfect lamb that didn't have a broken leg, didn't have a boil, didn't have anything wrong with it. They would take it to the temple, and they would make a sacrifice for their sins. What God is teaching here with that whole sacrificial system is that God is willing to accept the life of another for the penalty that should fall on us. That is that they're taking the lamb to the temple to sacrifice the life of the lamb, the blood of the lamb, for what penalty should fall on us. In other words, God is saying, I will accept a substitute on behalf of the Jewish person for their sin. And so this substitute has to be without blemish. It has to be a perfect lamb. It has to be spotless. It has to be flawless. In other words, for there to be a permanent solution, though, because, see, they had to keep bringing lambs to the temple when they'd sin. And so in order for there to be a permanent solution to the sin problem, a human lamb, if you would, a human substitute had to be offered. And again, this substitute had to be perfect. Just like the lambs were perfect, Jesus had to be perfect. And friends, this was Jesus' mission in coming to, the, to earth, to be our human lamb, our human substitute. This is why John the Baptist says in John chapter 1 and verse 29, he says, he declares of Jesus, he says, look, behold, the lamb of God, referring to Jesus, that takes away the sins of the world. And this is why Peter referred to Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19 as Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Friends, Jesus never committed one act of sin in his whole life, one act of wrongdoing. And if the rabbis had been able to produce just one sin that Jesus had committed, then Jesus would have been a blemished lamb. And therefore, his death would not have been able to pay for anyone's sin. His death on the cross would have been meaningless for us. You say, well, Gordon, okay, I get that Jesus makes this claim that he was sin-free. I see that the Bible 
makes this claim that Jesus was sin-free, I get why it's so important now that Jesus, our human substitute, be sin-free. I get that. But if all we have to prove that Jesus was sin-free is that the rabbis couldn't dig up some dirt on him. I mean, they didn't live around him all the time, right? They weren't, they weren't there with him all the time when he was out doing stuff. They, were just, you know, they would just see him for an hour while they were there throwing their questions at him, and then they leave, and then they come back, and they leave. And this whole thing went on, and I mean, you know, you're right. The rabbis didn't live around him. And so that brings us to compelling evidence number two. Compelling evidence number two that Jesus lived a sin-free life is the evidence of his own family's affirmation. His family's affirmation. Mark chapter 6 reports that Jesus had as many as six brothers and sisters. And here are their names. Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, it says, Isn't this the carpenter? These are the people in Jesus' hometown as Jesus is preaching among them at the beginning of his public ministry. And they're like, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, that guy named Jesus? And the brother, keyword brother, isn't this the brother of James? Some people that we knew growing up around, went to school with them. Isn't this the brother of Jesus, James, and Joseph, Jr., and Judas, who they later called Jude, and a guy named Simon, his other brother? Um, Aren't these his sisters here with us? And the people took offense at Jesus. You know, the interesting thing is that all throughout Jesus' public ministry, none of his brothers and sisters wanted to have anything to do with him. None of his brothers or sisters believed in him, thought that he was the Messiah. In fact, Mark chapter 3 and verse 21, uh, they're out trying to discourage Jesus from doing this public ministry, healing people. And so here's what happens. Mark chapter 3 and verse 21, when his family heard about the things that he was saying, they went to take charge of him. That is, they went to drag him back home. For they said, his family said, to all the people that were gathered there, hey, we're really sorry about this, but he's out of his mind. We don't understand why he's out here doing these things, saying the the kingdom of God has come, declaring all this stuff, saying that he's sin-free, saying that he's God in the flesh. We don't understand why he's doing this. And and so he's gone crazy. That's what his family thought. That's what his family thought about Jesus' ministry. And just a little while later, his brothers and sisters go and get their mom, Mother Mary, right, to, to, to bring her out to hopefully maybe she can convince Jesus to come back home because he's embarrassing the family name. Verse 31, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in, into the house, to call him. Verse 32, so the people inside the house said to Jesus, they said, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. That is, they want you to come home. They want you to, to, to get out of here. And let's fast forward now three years. So for three years of Jesus' public ministry, his, mother, his brothers and his sisters didn't want to have anything to do with him. Thought he was crazy, thought he was out of his mind, out there talking about the kingdom of God, talking about how he was God in the flesh. Fast forward three years, Jesus has now gone to the cross. Jesus has, um, everybody's abandoned him, his mother and his cousin John are the only ones that are left there at the cross. Jesus' body, after he dies, is placed in a tomb. Three days later, on the morning of the third day, Jesus resurrects from the dead. Now, the Apostle Paul, writing about Jesus' resurrection appearances, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, gives the order in which, of people in which Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. And the first of those, he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 5, is Peter. Peter sees Jesus, and then the twelve. Verse 6. After that, Jesus appeared to more than 500. And then here comes our key verse, verse 7. Then Jesus appeared to whom? 
or who, I'm not sure. My mom's here. She's a good grammatic person. She'll tell me after the service today who's, what it was. Uh-huh. Um, so whom? I don't, I don't know. Um, so, but who was it? Who did he appear to? James, his brother. He appeared to his brother, James, his brother who didn't believe in him, his brother who tried to drag him home, his brother who said that he was out of his mind, his brother who went and got their mom, his brother who didn't come to the crucifixion, didn't show him any support, who was ashamed of his older brother, Jesus. And now that he has seen his dead brother back to life, history records that James becomes a believer. Not only that, but so does his other brother, Jude. And they both are responsible for writing two books in the, Old, or in the New Testament. One we know as James and the other called Jude. And I'm sure that others of Jesus' family came to believe in him as well. Now put all this in perspective. Remember that Jesus died as the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And unless he was sinless, his death would not have meant, would not have meant a single thing. And here's his brother number one, James, And brother number two, Jude, putting their faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. If you read the very opening lines of each of their letters, this is what they say, is that James, a servant of Jesus Christ. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, he says. Friends, if there was one person on planet Earth that could have said in response to the question, can anybody prove me guilty of sin? Oh, oh, let me me tell you a time. Let, let, me, let, let, me, let me take you back to, to, to this time when. I mean, these are guys who grew up on the bunk bed underneath of Jesus, right? Who, who grew up out on the playground with Jesus. These are guys who walked back and forth to school with him. If there's anybody in all of humanity that could have said, oh, let me tell you when, it's these two fellas. They had memories of Jesus as an eight-year-old boy working alongside their dad. They had memories of Jesus getting left behind in Jerusalem for his bar mitzvah. They had all of these memories circulating in their minds, and there's not a single time that they can think of when Jesus ever swore. There's not a single time in all of his life that they can remember that Jesus ever started a rumor. He always cleaned his room. He did his homework. He never snuck candy. He never cheated in sports. He never had to apologize for anything. It's no wonder he was mom's favorite child, right? That's really what's going on here. It happened a little psychological uh, evaluation here but anyhow they confessed as Pilate confessed we find no fault in him now remember if Jesus had sinned even just a little even just one little sin it would have contaminated him it would have disqualified him to be able to um, to be able to for his death on the cross to mean anything and yet not one member of his family ever stepped forward and said oh let me tell you a time You say, well, Gordon, once again, you miss the very obvious. James and Jude, his brothers, this is the family business. I mean, of course, they're not going to turn state's evidence against their brother. It's going to wreck the family business. This is the law of self-preservation going on here. Well, that may be true, except for one little historical detail. One little detail. And this brings us to compelling evidence number three. And that is that that Jesus lived a sinless, sin-free life. Compelling evidence number three is the martyrdom of James and Jude. Jesus, his brother James, went on to become the head of the Christian church in Jerusalem. Uh, All the Christians who lived in Jerusalem post-Christ's resurrection, James ended up giving his life to Christ, put his faith and trust in Jesus for his sins, um, regarded him, 
Yes, he was his older brother, but he was also his savior. And so James becomes the head of the Christian church in Jerusalem. So the Christians who live in Jerusalem, James kind of oversees that. In the year 62 AD, James died a martyr's death. He was stoned to death by the Jews. Also, Jesus' brother Jude spent much of his life traveling as a missionary in Asia Minor and was eventually martyred. He was beaten to death with clubs. He had his head crushed by a broad axe. And his body lays today in a crypt in Rome. Friends, if these guys knew that their brother had sinned, that is, that his death on the cross meant nothing, that he was a fraud, he was an imposter, he had not lived a sin-free life, if they knew that, why would they give their life on behalf of him? Why would they give their life to defend a testimony that they knew to be a lie? Many people have given their lives over the course of human history for things that they believed in. Rarely would anyone give their life for something that they knew to be a lie. If you want compelling evidence that Jesus lived a sinless life, look no further than his brother James. Look no further than his brother Jude, who died testifying that Jesus was indeed the sinless, spotless, blemish-free Lamb of God given to die for our sins. All right, well, let's summarize. God's justice demands that a sin substitute be offered to pay, for the, pay the penalty for our sins. However, that substitute has to be perfect and blemish-free and sinless, and the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth, lived a sinless life. Therefore, when he died on the cross, his death satisfied the justice of God on our behalf. His sin-free life is proof that the rabbis, who were his sworn enemies, right? The reason why they couldn't find any sin in Jesus is because he lived a sin-free life. Um, it's, uh, his sinless life is proved by his family, who found no fault in him. In fact, they believed in him so much that they were willing to give their own lives on behalf of uh, this testimony rather than recant it. You say, okay, Gordon, well, that's really great. I appreciate you sharing this morning. You're working hard up there today. I feel a little bit closer to God, but will you bring this around to where the rest of us live? What difference does all this make to my life? That's a very good question. Let me see if I can answer that. You see, now that the justice of God has been satisfied through the death that Jesus has paid on the cross, God is free to do some really wonderful things. God is free to enter into a personal relationship with you and with me. God is free to call us his children. God is free now to speak blessings into our lives. God is free to give us eternal life. Now that our death penalty has been paid, God is free to be our father. He's free to be our shepherd. He's free to be our guide. He's free to be our defender. He's free to be our covenant partner and our friend. All kinds of good things can happen to us as a result of what Jesus has done on the cross. Because those rabbis could not answer Jesus' question back, hey, which one of you can find me guilty of sin? Because of that, all of these wonderful things, blessings from the Lord, are now open to us. Now, if you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you've never put your faith and trust in him like James did, like Jude did, this is something for you to think about. It's important for you to know that there is a death penalty, a sentence hanging over your head. And that the only way for that penalty to be removed is to put your trust in Jesus and allow for what should happen to you to be what happened to Jesus. And so you have to take 
the penalty that Jesus paid on your behalf into your own life by inviting Christ in, asking him to forgive you of your sins, asking him to become your savior. Um, Something for you to think about. You say, well, Gordon, what if I've already done that? What if I've already trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins? What difference does all this make to me? Well, as I was thinking through the, you know, Jesus lived a sin-free life, how did he do that? I mean, that question, does that not pop up to you guys? Um, I mean, I I wondered often about this. I'm like, how could he have lived a sin-free life? Well, I'm not going to ask you to flip over there this morning, but in Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus fighting against temptation. It's the story of Jesus, uh, right before he goes into his public ministry, he goes out into the desert. Right before he begins going out and preaching and beginning his miracles, he goes out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's out there praying and he's fasting. And so at the end of his 40 days, Satan comes to him. Jesus' emotions are, you know, he's very broken physically, he's weak. Um, And so Satan finds Jesus at a very vulnerable point in his life. And Satan knows, hey, look, if I can get in there and I can tempt Jesus and I can get him to sin, then whatever it is he's getting ready to go do, I can negate it all. And so it's go time for Satan. And so he comes to Jesus in this weakened state, and uh, he tempts Jesus three different times. And each of the times that he tempts Jesus, Jesus responds with these words, it is written. And then he quotes some verse from the Old Testament. You see, friends, the written word of God is an offensive weapon. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 6, it lists off some of the armor of God. um, But there's only one offensive weapon that's placed in the hand of the believer. Uh, You got the helmet, you got the sword or the shield, you got all these different things. But there's one weapon that's an offensive weapon. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17 says, Take the sword, an offensive weapon, of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Friends, Jesus used the Word of God to fight off temptation. That's how he lived a sin-free life. He used the written Word of God to fight off temptation. Now, how do we typically fight off temptation? You know, when you think about it, how do we typically fight off temptation? We say temptation's coming our way. We say, I will not look, I will not look. I will not go there. I will not say that. I will not do those things. Right? That's kind of what we do. We're going to gut it out. We're not going to do that. We're not going to go there. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus memorized Scripture. He quoted Scripture to the tempter. David said to apply the same strategy. He said, I will hide your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Friends, we need to stop trying to fight sin by our own strength. We need to stop trying to fight sin by our own willpower. We need to turn to the mechanism that God gave us, a sword in our hand, by memorizing Scripture, putting Scripture in our heart on a weekly basis so that when sin comes, we can just say God's word to the tempter, and it'll run. Friends, we can't willpower our way out of those situations. We can't overcome sin using our intellect. God gave us his written word for us to hide it in our hearts, to guide us, to instruct us, to encourage us, but also as a sword that we might not sin against him. Will we be perfect? No. Perfection left the earth 2,000 years ago. But we can be more consistent in our daily walk with the Lord. And I can be less a captive of sin and more a captive 
of Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for talking to us today from your word. We thank you for the revelation that comes from your word of that if we hide it in our hearts, Lord, that we'll be more consistent in our walk with you. And that's what we want. God, we don't want to live in a way that dishonors you. We don't want to live in a way that's self-destructive to ourselves, our families, our children. We want to live in a way that glorifies you. And you've given us the method by hiding your word in our hearts. Lord, as we spend some time here remembering your broken body and your shed blood, we also remember that you walked this earth, that you lived it perfect, and we're thankful for that. We ask, Lord, that you would give us the strength by the power of your Holy Spirit to overcome whatever sin we may be struggling with. Lord, we submit those things to you. We place them at the foot of your cross in these quiet moments. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.